0: Hello and welcome to What You've Been Watching, an up-to-the-minute film and TV podcast where your host and leading film critic Roshan Chandi gives you his recommendations for what to watch in the world of TV and film, rounds up the weekly entertainment news and asks guests and listeners the big question, What You've Been Watching? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of What You've Been Watching. I'm your host, Roshan Chandi. It's Valentine's Day week. I appreciate I'm three days late to the whole Valentine's Day scenario. How was it for you? I imagine it was very quiet. It certainly was for me. But then again, what do you expect from a locked down Valentine's Day? How was it for you? Did you watch any good films? Any good romantic movies? Please feel free to let me know what you've been watching at my podcast email address. That's what you have been watching at roshansreviews.co.uk. I'll pitch this titular question again at the end But this week, I want to have a very romantic theme. I want to know what romantic movies you've been watching, whether new or old. I already rounded up my top five romantic movie moments on Instagram and on roshansreviews.com. You can watch my IGTV video and read my post on the top five romantic movie moments on my website at roshansreviews.com. But anyway, this romantic theme is for this whole episode and was certainly the focus of a very big part of this week's show. You see, I did my first guest interview on this podcast this week. Well, not this week. We recorded it last week, but it was for this week's show. Henry Bright, a regular emailer to this show, holds the honour of being my first podcast guest. He's a third-year design craft student at De Montfort University in Leicester, and he came on the show to talk about a couple of personal things, but mostly to talk about what he's been watching. I asked Henry the titular question, question of the show what you've been watching and he had quite a few really good responses in terms of what he's been seeing in the world of tv and film and we had a really good conversation partly about valentine's day partly about other stuff such a good conversation that i really really struggled to cut it down because we talked for so long you know it it was great though and i hope you enjoy our conversation too because here it is enjoy Hello to Henry.
1: Hello. Hello, Rishana. I'm so happy we could arrange this.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really happy as well because you hold the honour of being the first guest on what you've been watching. Brilliant. Fantastic. It's amazing um, but, because you know it's, a, it's it is a big deal for me because I've obviously only just started doing podcasts mm. and to you know have a guest actually come on the show and actually answer my questions, however silly they might be, you know. Yeah, of it, it, it's a really good experience, and I, I feel yeah, really really happy. But, you know, it's, it's just really good yeah. to have you on the show, man. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, well,
1: thank, so, thank you for
0: having me. Yeah, so, so you're Henry, <laughs> you're Henry Bright. Um, yeah. So, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for a living.
1: Uh, well, I'm actually a student. I'm a third year design craft student at De Montfort University, Leicester. And you and me, we, we, go, we go back a yeah, long, do. long way,
0: we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. Long way. we still um,
1: are really good friends.
0: Yeah. Uh, so of I suppose we're going to talk about this a little bit later because obviously Valentine's Day is coming up and... I wanted this podcast in particular to have a sort of romantic theme, a Valentine's Day theme, Um, and I suppose the big question that I have to ask you is obviously the title of my show, and this links into the fact it's a very special episode because it's Valentine's Day in the next few days, and so I'm going to ask you what you've been watching. Well I've actually been watching, I'm into kind of documentaries
1: yeah. there, and that's what I've been watching throughout this lockdown. So like um, a lot of documentaries on Netflix, like uh, 60 Days In, which is where American civilians did go into jail and it, the inmates don't know that they're innocent, but the innocent ones know that they're innocent. And it's just a really odd kind of situation. It's really, really interesting. Um, so that's that's a really good documentary I've been watching or, or like Inside the World's Toughest Prisons. That's really good too. Um, yeah. It's about uh, Raphael Rowe who was incarcerated in England for a crime he didn't commit and he yeah. goes around the world and he finds the world's toughest prisons. So that's that's really interesting. Um, uh, I've also been watching... Uh, some classic movies like um, the Shawshank Redemption. I love the Shawshank Redemption. I love it too, (laughs) oh my gosh.
0: Um, What's your favourite scene from that? My favourite scene from the Shawshank Redemption, I think it will have to be the scene uh, towards the end of the film, I think shortly after the escape after Tim Robbins' character escapes, and whole the whole bit where it says Brooke was here was is it Brooke was here? You know, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Brooks was here, and, and I, I just I love the soundtrack in that scene. The soundtrack by Thomas Newman is just it always moves me to tears, especially when Morgan Freeman's character writes and so was read. You know, on the wall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an absolutely brilliant film and, and yeah. great choice, man, for watching. That. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can't fault that at all. Um, so you've been watching a wide range of films um and, and tv dramas yeah, documentaries you said, yeah. have you watched anything mm-hmm. particularly valentine's yeah. day related anything romantic at all well uh I, w-
1: I watched that film which you suggested to me to watch okay and what was that i believe we're about to discuss that yeah
0: and, and what and, <laughs> you're giving away the show uh right? when harry met sally when harry met sally yes that's the thing <laughs> oh no You've given away that I gave you that recommendation. (laughs) Um, I mean, great choice. Again, it's one of my favourite films. I I remember the first time I saw it was about 10 years ago, actually, when I was actually on a flight to India. Yeah, I watched it on an aeroplane. And it's absolute ideal aeroplane viewing, you know, in-flight entertainment. Because, I mean, it's almost impossible these days to find a... An aeroplane, to be honest, that isn't showing when Harry met Sally because it's become such a sensation. And ever since it came out, and I'm, yeah. I'm just so glad that obviously you, you watched it. Really? Obviously,
1: yeah. I, I wouldn't have missed it for the world.
0: Yeah. Well, well, it's fantastic. <laughs> we'll, I'm sure, have a very long, detailed discussion about it. What are your views on this film? Oh, I,
1: I absolutely loved the film. It was, it was just so relatable, wasn't it? Like young people yeah. and how they meet each other and then after a few years have passed and they meet each other again and it's like oh my gosh how are you and it's like
0: oh yeah I'm good. I think that's what is the key to its success that I think it's one of those films that has despite having some pretty naughty scenes you know know, which we'll talk about a little (laughs) bit later as well but I think why it's endured so much is I think it's so accessible and so relatable I mean almost everyone who is either being in a relationship or being in a sort of male female friendship will absolutely relate Mm. to the movie because the central central idea at the heart of the film is spoken by one of the characters and that's the line can men and women just ever just be friends yeah exactly (laughs) dilemma at the heart of the film that the characters harry and sally who's played by meg ryan and billy crystal are essentially trying to resist that attraction if you know what i mean yeah and and i think that that's you've absolutely hit the nail nail on the head (laughs) in the sense that i think that is why it is so relatable and why people still connect with it even though it's 32 years old this year it came out in 1989 so yes it has really stood the test of time i think it's aged really well you can Mm. say um so I have to ask you. Obviously, with Valentine's Day coming up, I have to ask you: Did this film make you feel in love? Did you fall in love with the film?
1: Yeah, I definitely. I couldn't take my eyes off the film. It was that good. I just, normally, um, you'd find something else to do, but I was like, no, I need to watch the film because it was just so engrossing.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and and. It is one of those films that makes you almost crave a kind of time in your life when you want Mm. to be young and in love and just have that feeling of being in a relationship or in a male-female friendship because it it has that universal appeal, I think. And I I think Mm. that's what I've always loved about When Harry Met Sully. I just every time I watch it, I just fall in love with it again. And the last time I saw it was uh last year, actually, of the summer. Because really? after ages, and I watched oh, yeah. it at the cinema because they were re-showing it. Because obviously, the cinemas have been closed, so they were just showing old movies. And so I loved seeing mm. it on the big screen, and I absolutely fell in love with the film all over again. Yeah. I'm glad to know that you've obviously you've fallen in love with it as well. Definitely, love. yeah, it was great. And, and I think it's one of those things yeah. that does make people fall in love with it, and almost for some people, I guess, fall in love. They've fallen in love to when Harry met Sally. Yeah, exactly. So what is your favourite bit of the film? And please don't talk about one particular scene in this film, but I think you've, you, you can probably guess what scene I'm talking about. It's probably one of the most iconic scenes of all time. But just tell me, what was your favourite bit of the film, excluding that scene? Um, it was probably when
1: uh, Harry and Sally were phoning... Marcy and Jess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when they're in the bed, and then uh, Harry and Sally are like living their lives, doing day to day things like, oh my gosh, uh, does he like me? Does he not? Oh my gosh. And they were just trying to get good feedback as to what they thought the date was like. And then they were like, I don't know whether to call her, I don't know what to call him. And I was like, Ugh.
0: yeah. It was great. And what did you like about that scene in particular? What was- I just, I, it,
1: it was just quite relatable. Like They were obviously phoning each other and the people they were phoning were right next to each other. And you just wanted to go run onto the screen and marry the two phones up up close together. So they were speaking to each other.
0: That's (laughs) That's a really good analogy, actually. It's really interesting that you mentioned that. (laughs) I hope
1: hope that wasn't the scene you were talking
0: about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We'll come to that now. Oh, oh no, gosh. So do you you want to explain what happens in that scene? (laughs) Well, where Harry uh,
1: states all of Sally's flaws... And then I love it when you're da-da-da. And but is that the scene you're thinking?
0: Well, not quite. I was thinking about more of oh, the scene no. specifically where oh, no. they sit in a restaurant and Meg Ryan Sally starts imitating... Of course. You know i'm gonna say yeah basically oh, has a fake orgasm yeah, basically yeah um, mm. <laughs> so it's oh. um it's pretty intense isn't it that scene yeah oh gosh um, yeah definitely i mean what, that fake that orgasm scene is it's a hilarious scene i absolutely love it yeah That's, i just love the line that comes off to it, it when the other woman who's sitting nearby says oh, yeah. having Oh after meg ryan does the fake orgasm and does the noises mm. and yeah That fake orgasm scene is probably one of the most iconic movie scenes of the last 30 years. Yeah, of course. Do you have anything to say about it? And maybe why Uh, it captured people's imagination so much?
1: uh, Well, I think it's probably because it's so put on. Like, I can't imagine someone saying all of that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not exactly an everyday occurrence, is it? When someone walks into a restaurant and suddenly starts having a fake orgasm, basically. Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) But that is the scene that everyone remembers from the film. It's infamous for that scene. It's so out there I don't think anyone had ever seen something like this that was so blatantly sexual and raunchy yeah you know, without actually featuring any actual sex or anything like that yeah it was, exactly it's kind of an escape in the sense that kind of captures a lot of people's desires to be more free to do whatever they want it's a good scene yeah <laughs> i mean it's infamous for that scene i think i think that's one of the reasons why the film has endured as much as it has over the years that's, yeah
1: it was just so over the top, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is very over the top and and very rude, but I, that's why I love it so much because it's so out yeah. there, unlike anything we've sort of seen on screen and certainly in a romantic comedy before. <laughs> so one of the central questions at the heart of the film is spoken by one of the characters, and that's, can men and women ever just be friends? Firstly, do you think they can just be friends? But what I'd more want to know is, do you think society has certain expectations of men and women to have some sort of attraction between each other? Yeah, of course. I have many
1: women who are my friends. Yeah, absolutely. Um, same, same
0: here. <laughs> yeah,
1: they're, they're just my friends. But um, it's really hard to convey that to, to other people. Like, if you're really close to one of your friends... And they're like, oh my gosh, get together. And it's like, uh, we're just friends. Um, but it's, it is what it is.
0: Yeah, and there, I think there is this expectation that it, when it's a woman and a man who are friends, I think there is this expectation that there is some kind of attraction between them. Going yeah, exactly. On. I think we haven't got to that point yet where society has completely allowed us to sit back and, and accept that men and women can just be pals. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I think that this film d- dealt with that idea of men and women struggling to you know convey the fact that they're just pals long before yeah. society ever started to really deconstruct this as they do now because now mm. it's much more acceptable than it was back in 1989 for men and women yeah. just just literally to be pals and have no attraction between each other if you know what i mean and 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 i think that is the central drama at the heart of the film I think what I like about When mm. Harry Met Sally is that it goes against standard kind of rom-com conventions it's not really a film about falling in love it's about a film about two people trying not to fall in love just trying to stay yeah. friends which is very different from a lot of rom-coms which are essentially about mm. you know boy meets girl man meets woman and they yeah have a family and have wonderful romantic adventures together yeah and it's kind of anti-rom-com in a sense because it's not really about falling in love it's about People trying not to fall in love, if you know what I mean. That's yeah, definitely. Thing. A yeah, lot so- of
1: my best friends are girls. And it's just, it's just uh, like, why can't you understand that we're just friends, like to the
0: outside world? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. I think every, every man and woman has sort of experienced that somewhat. When they have a close friend who is a man or a woman, uh, there's, there's always a sort of tension, I think, that people don't quite get over yeah you know and that that people expect there's always more between men and women yeah when it's just a woman and another woman or a man and another man they just think they're just pals but we need to reach that point in society where men and women can just be friends to be honest yeah exactly and 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 don't have to worry about attraction basically and i think that Mm. It's, it's it's partly the fault of society that we've indoctrinated people to think in a particular way that men and women have to necessarily be a couple if they're close to exactly. And I think that's what Nora Ephron, the writer, was really trying to do with the film. He was trying to mm. pitch a new idea between men and women. <laughs> that's the thing. You know, yeah. This idea of a male-female friendship. So what do you think is the crucial message of this movie? That Keeps people coming back to it 32 years since its original release. It's just a story about real people and it's a
1: quintessential fairy tale ending. Yeah. You
0: know. I, th- I think that's you, you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head there, that sort of fairy tale ending. We haven't got much time left on, on, on this recording, uh, um, but thank you so much for coming on this show and, and agreeing to do this interview. It was my honor. I've loved it. And I guess I couldn't leave you without asking you the big question that's on every boy's mind. Did you fancy Meg Ryan? Because I certainly did and do completely. Yeah, she certainly was a great character. Um, yeah. <laughs> great actor. Yeah, she she was nice. And, and, and I, I think she's absolutely magical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, She has a real charm. It's part of why we fall in love with the film, basically. Ever since I first watched it, I completely fell in love with Meg Ryan. That's the, yeah, and, yeah. um, and she's really what keeps me coming back to it. I think.
1: Yeah, she's yeah. like the girl next door, isn't she?
0: Yeah, absolutely. She is absolutely that girl next door. She has that kind of appeal mm. that I think Mastone Stone has, for example. Yeah, she's beautiful, and, you know, mm. and really charming and likable and and funny. I think that has definitely attracted audiences to the film especially yeah. male audiences but also female audiences look up to her as a goal model so yeah of course I, I wouldn't blame you if you fancied meg ryan <laughs> yeah and um because i certainly did and uh, and, and still do she's probably like sixty years old now <laughs> <laughs> oh. but she's a great character and, and i think her and billy mm. have such great chemistry throughout this yeah world. Um, so thank you so much Henry for coming on this show it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on um, to ask you all these questions and I'm really really glad you've now seen When Harry Met Sally thank you so much for your emails because um, it's it's always a pleasure to see that in my podcast email address and I can't thank you enough for coming on the show so Henry I wouldn't have missed it thank you for joining us uh, thank you Rasha Henry Bright talking there about what he's been watching, specifically about When Harry Met Sally, Nora Ephron's brilliant 1989 masterpiece, and about my love for Meg Ryan. (laughs) We recorded that interview before Valentine's Day, so apologies if it's a bit outdated and if there were sound problems on the recording. That's what you get from recording via Zoom. But me and Henry had a really good chat, and he set a gold standard for future podcast guests, of which I hope I will have many. Anyway, another week means more films to watch and I've been watching The White Tiger which is already shaping up as one of my favourite films of 2021 and we're what like five weeks into this year now only? <laughs> I'm joking but The White Tiger is a brilliant film it reminded me a lot of Slumdog Millionaire you remember Danny Boyle's film from 2009 there are a lot of similarities between The White Tiger and Slumdog Millionaire they're both set in India but directed by non-Indians just like Brit Danny Boyle directed Slumdog Millionaire, The White Tiger is directed by Iranian-American filmmaker Rahmin Barani who made 99 Homes with Andrew Garfield and Michael Shannon back in 2015. It's also based on a best-selling novel with Dickensian undertones. Slumdog was based on Vikas Swarup's Q&A and The White Tiger is based on a novel called The White Tiger by Arabind Adiga from 2008. They both even have a token Bollywood star as has become tradition in these sort of non-Indian movies. About India. Remember Anil Kapoor playing the host of the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? While The White Tiger stars the very beautiful Priyanka Chopra, Lady Jonas, since her marriage to Nick Jonas. And The White Tiger and Slumdog Millionaire are both essentially rags to riches stories about young men brought up in poverty, making fortunes for themselves against the backdrop of a very hostile modern India. Yet I found The White Tiger more universal than Slumdog. It doesn't just tackle child poverty poverty and child abuse, but it also tackles the classism, casteism and communalism that continue to affect Narendra Modi's increasingly retrogressive India. That's not to say the movie is at all political or polemical. It needs to be championed first as a Dickens-worthy satire and a Goodfellas-style crime story about a man's rise within the criminal underworld, with a Fight Club-style voiceover, chipping and chirruping commentary on the state of Indian masculinity, materialism and mainstream establishment. Indian star Ardash Gaurav is the Oliver Twist or David Copperfield of this story. He's played. He plays Balram Hawaii, who we meet, first meet penning an email to the then Chinese premier, Wen Jiabao, requesting a meeting and recounting his life story. Balram believes the Indian underclass who are referred to under the caste system as the untouchables, a horrible term which I hate saying. They, they, they believe, he believes they're trapped in a perpetual state of servitude which he describes as like chickens in a chicken coop. Balram grows up in the poverty-stricken village of Laxmangar in Rajasthan, one of India's poorest and most conservative states. He's offered a scholarship to Delhi thanks to his academic advancements. Yet when his father fails to pay off the village landlord, a horrible man named the Stork, played by Mahesh Mandraka. Balram's grandmother makes Balram scrape scrape by selling tea at the village tea stall. He's a chaiwala, And Balram never returns to school many years later an adult balram has aspirations to be a chauffeur for ashok son of the stork and ashok brings home his gorgeous jackson heights raised wife pinky who is played by in a very sweet performance by priyanka chopra who i mentioned earlier balram becomes the family's second driver while the primary driver hides his muslim heritage because the stork is prejudiced against muslims balram goes on to blackmail him by threatening to reveal his true faith so that Balram can be Ashok and Pinky's driver in Delhi. Unlike other members of their family, Ashok and Pinky treat Balram with respect and grow close to him, but they still regard him as a servant. I think one of the White Tiger's major themes is classism, which is still a big issue in modern India, and there's one line by Balram which rather beautifully and hilariously sums up the divide between the rich and the poor. It goes, "There there are only two men in India. Men with big bellies and men with small bellies he's of course referring to the stereotype that the rich are corpulent and fat and the poor are malnourished and skinny this lends a very dickensian edge to the drama but i think more significantly and which is still a very divisive modern indian issue that *The White tiger tackles head-on is casteism there's a scene where balram describes the two people of the light and the darkness and there are more than two castes still prevalent in the hindu caste system but what balram is referring to in the light and the darkness is the stereotype and borderline racism where higher castes are associated with fairer skin and lower castes with dark skin. And his commentary on this matter really taps into and unveils a seemingly global prejudice and fear of darkness. There's also an element of communalism which is seen when Ashok's driver has to hide his Muslim heritage because the stork is prejudiced against Muslims. And I think this is a very real concern in modern India with the BJP government a Hindu nationalist government whose ruling party, the BJP their primary ideology is that they want India to be a Hindu state where India has always been a secular country and there's that's been the key to its the strengths of its democracy, where other South Asian countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh have had coups and political instability. Sorry, I'm mouthing Indian politics now. <laughs> I should tell you, you might not know, or at least know now, that I am half Indian. And when I was, when I first watched the White Type, when uh, include, and I've been to India many times, uh, including the time when I first watched when Harry met Sally on the plane to India. So I basically grown up with a hard line. Indian father, who often rants in great detail about the divisions that are plaguing Prime Minister Narendra Modi's India. And Prime Minister Modi is basically India's Donald Trump, except a little smart, smarter and a little less nastier. But... He's really dividing the country with this Hindu nationalist government that wants a Hindu state, and therefore non-Hindus, particularly Muslims, are finding their ways of life increasingly under threat. At times, the White Tiger resembles a Shakespearean morality play. Lord Acton, the English Catholic historian, politician, and writer, once said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are always bad men. And... Power certainly corrupts Balram. I mean, in one scene, he murders Ashok and absconds with a huge amount of bride money. And the richer he becomes, the more monstrous he becomes. I think as Balram... Ardash Gararav is a real talent find. He's not very well known over here in the UK, but he has starred opposite Shahrukh Khan in My Name is Khan, which came out 11 years ago, and is a really interesting film about Asperger's Syndrome. Gararav has also been in several other Indian movies, including Mum and Rook, which are available on Netflix. But I really think the White Tiger will be his turning point and shoot him to international stardom, in the same way as Dev Patel was shot to international stardom, thanks to the Slumdog Millionaire and now he's just received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy. More on that later. But back to Ardash Garav. I think what he has is that weediness and shortness that is so perfectly built for playing a young man who spent his whole life living in poverty and having richer, older men put their feet on him simply because they feel like they can treat him like that because he's of a lower caste. He has some of that weediness and shortness of Di Bradley in *Kes* and Louise Otavio in City of God. I could certainly imagine him in an Oliver Twist or David Copperfield adaptation, and I loved his skin-crawling transformation from meek narrator to Tyler Durden-esque sexbot. Priyanka Chopra is in many ways sort of the Nancy figure of the film. You know Nancy from Oliver Twist. I mean, she's really humble and kind to the servants, and she's rich, fair, American, and beautiful, so could very easily be seen as the film's white saviour, you could say. She's not white, but she is rich, fair, she's American, and she's beautiful, and so I can imagine some people would have contention with the fact that she's the only one who is kind to the servants. But I think Chopra does a very good job in a role that some people might object to and have problems with. I'm sure the film will cause further contention in some of India's more conservative states, where Hindu nationalism, casteism, and communalism are big issues. I mean, as always, as we know from our, politi- from our politics, politicians and Hindu nationalists, BJP supporters in India don't like to be reminded of the decades, generations even, of installed prejudices that continue to run rampant in what Indians call the Bimaru states. It stems from the Hindi word Bima, which means sick. And these states are, for one thing, very rural and poor, and as some people say, are might say the politics, the the caste politics in particular, is very backwards. These states are just very conservative in their values and traditions, and are majority Hindu. They're very much like the American Deep South, very conservative, and still upholding beliefs which some seem which some seem quite out of touch with modern India and and America as countries, and. Two years ago, India's BJP Party Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, swept back to power in re-election on a promise that together we will build a strong and inclusive India. And two years on, the classes and communities of this huge subcontinent have never been more divided. We are seeing a divided India. I remember the controversy generated by Slumdog Millionaire when it first came out in 2009. Lots of people rejected and objected to the fact that the film portrayed India in a very dark light in terms of depicting child poverty and child abuse which again is a very real problem in so many countries in the world but particularly in India and many people rejected Danny Boyle's depiction of child poverty and abuse in India and suggested that Boyle's vision of India was a tourist eye view of the country seen through the eyes of a wealthy outsider and I think there's always a danger faced by any outsider especially from a third world first world country. When it comes to portraying a foreign, even third dare I say, third world country, there's always a danger that the filmmaker from another country won't see the full picture of the country he's portraying, and therefore is in danger of misrepresenting this country. Because after all, child poverty and abuse is only one side to a country as big and beautiful as India, and which I love visiting. But then again bollywood filmmakers in india are pretty notorious for washing over the social and economic challenges facing modern indians i would suggest everyone filmmaker or not but particularly many bollywood filmmakers would really benefit from watching the white tiger not only is it a terrific film it's so smart and so sexy and so satirical and so worthy of dickens but it's also a real eye-opener to just one side to big beautiful india So that's The White Tiger, which is on Netflix now. I'm giving it five stars. Please check it out and read the book. I'm going to read the book next. This film is just terrific. The Golden Globe nominations were announced a couple of weeks ago, and I was pretty late to reading them. I wanted basically to watch more of the typical awards contenders in advance of actually knowing what the nominations are. So this is my quite belated response to the Golden Globe nominations. It will be really interesting to see how this ceremony pans out. It's scheduled to take place on February 28th. But will there be a red carpet, stars and journalists and photographers? Will they all be wearing masks? Or will they video call from their bedrooms to give award speeches, as has become tradition and a very familiar sight in post-2020 film festivals? As for the nominations themselves... I'm pleased to say that it's a very diverse selection. There are three women, a historic feat, nominated for Best Director of a Motion Picture, and two of those women, Regina King and Chloe Zhao, are of ethnic minorities. Best Actress also has two black nominees in Viola Davies and Andra Day. Meanwhile, Best Actor features a black man, the late Chadwick Boseman, an Asian man, Riz Ahmed, and a man of Algerian descent, Tahar Rahim, although personally I would have liked to see Chadwick nominated for Best Supporting Actor rather than Best Actor for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, as Viola Davies is the leading lady of that movie. The Brits did really well in this year's categories, great to see two Brits in the best actor categories for both drama and musical or comedy in Riz Ahmed and Dev Patel. Anya Taylor-Joy is nominated for Emma, along with Carey Mulligan for Pieces of a Promising Young Woman and Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman. The Best Actor list has three Brits alongside Riz, also including Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins. Olivia Colman also got nominated for The Father. Out of the Best Picture Drama category, I'm of course disappointed that the best film of last year, Tenet, isn't nominated, but I know many people don't share that view. I think it's David Fincher's year to finally win both his best picture and best director. He definitely deserves it, as *Mank* is a brilliant film about the making of the so-called greatest movie ever made, Citizen Kane, and is about 1940s Hollywood, which is where the Golden Globes are set and celebrating. So, of course, a film about the dark heart of Hollywood is going to win the big prize. I have to say the rest of the dramatic best picture selection is very safe and very awards-based. I mean, it's no surprise that we've got two biopics, *Mank* and The Trial of the Chicago 7, and a movie starring awards darling Frances McDormand travelling around the US in Nomadland. I mean, it's not like we haven't seen that before. And then there's a movie about dementia, which we've really seen a little too much of recently in films and are going to see it done again in The Father. I haven't seen The Father or Nomadland so we'll wait to pass judgment. The only one that I haven't seen yet that really interests me is Promising Young Woman with Carey Mulligan and is about a woman who tries to avenge her best friend who was raped. This looks pretty raunchy and racy for typical awards nominees, and obviously one of its reviews caused controversy when they basically said Carey Mulligan wasn't hot enough, so I think this will be the dark horse contender to watch. I'm not even going to bother talking about the best musical or comedy category, because they're usually crap, and I haven't seen any of them this year, not even Borat's subsequent film. So, who were the big snubs at this year's Golden Globes? Well, I think it's very disappointing King Kingsley Benedier wasn't nominated for One Night in Miami. No nomination too for Alfred Woodard in Clemency, which was the best performance by any actor last year. But Clemency wasn't eligible because it was eligible for last year's awards, but was only released in the UK after awards season last summer. Weird, isn't it? It's great to see Amanda Seyfried nominated for Manx, she needs to win Best Supporting Actress for sure. No Christopher Nolan for Tenet either. I mean, whether you like the film or not, you can't argue that it wasn't brilliantly directed. Great too to see normal people and small acts get nominations, and Daisy Edgar Jones for normal people, but no, but no Paul Mescal, he was the standout of that show. Also, why is John Boyega nominated for TV supporting actor when he was the leading actor in Red, White and Blue? I think this really raises a debate about whether we shouldn't be awarding films and TV shows separately, and whether we should just award actors for performances regardless of whether they're in a film or a TV show. I mean, many of the small acts films like Red, White and Blue played at film festivals, for example, and so the line between TV and film is becoming increasingly blurred and the two mediums are almost indistinguishable from one another nowadays. I was disappointed by the lack of foreign language films and actors in the major categories, apart from German child star Helena Zengel, who was nominated for News of the World. I just think after Parasite's historic win at the Oscars last year, becoming the first foreign language film to win Best Picture, this year's foreign language film list it just looks a bit bland, especially with The Life Ahead, which I actually watched dubbed in english for example the worst thing was seeing a nomination for emily in paris i mean what were they thinking that show is a cultural travesty and just such bilge and as much as i like lily collins she does not deserve to get nominated for that show But overall, a really good selection of films and performers, a lot of diversity, a lot of gender equality. It looks like the the awards panels are listening to our concerns about levelling the playing field and responding to them by giving us what is easily the blackest, most feminist Golden Globes bunch in years. It's now all on the February 28th ceremony to see if awards ceremonies still have a place in the COVID world. We don't have long left on this show. Uh, That's what happens when we've been talking for quite a while. But I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. And I'll run down my top five films of the week in a bit. But before I do that, I just wanted to very quickly talk about a TV series I've been watching on BBC iPlayer. It's called Black Narcissus. No, not that Black Narcissus. Well, yes, that Black Narcissus. But not the 1947 film adaptation starring Deborah Kerr and Kathleen Byron. No, this is a 2020 BBC update to Rumour Godin's classic 1939 novel about Himalayan nuns psychologically imploding in the Himalayas. And instead of, De- instead of Deborah Kerr, this stars the lovely Gemma Arterton as the saintly Sister Clodar and Ashling Franziosi, who was so unhinged in The Nightingale, as the psychotic Sister Ruth. It's basically the story of a convent of Anglican nuns known as Saint Faith who are sent on a mission to set up a school and a hospital in 1930s to 1940s northern India. Upon arriving there, they clash with the locals, both culturally and religiously. There's essentially a clash between Christianity and Hinduism, and Britain versus India, and the nuns start to slowly implode into the high-altitude environment, with some to more dangerous levels than others. Now, I watched the 1947 Black Narcissus shortly before watching the BBC series, and it's really worth checking out. It's a terrific film that deals with when two religions find themselves are the fisticuffs of each other's throats and how lifelong God-fearing devotion can push some people over the edge but strengthen its grip on others and when I heard about the BBC series I was genuinely wondering how it could top or live up to the Paul and Pressburger film which I think is a masterpiece. Could anything be much better? So I sat down to watching the three-part BBC Black Narcissus with a lot of trepidation and I have to say I was pleasantly surprised. First thing to say is that it, that is a very different beast there are some crucial differences between this BBC Black Narcissus and the Powell and Pressburger film, specifically the fish-out-of-water element that was a major part of the first half of the original movie, has been massively toned down. You know, the original featured Deborah Kerr's Sister Clodagh being seemingly out of touch and lost for words at the simplicity of life in rural India, which is a world away from sitting in a chapel, for example. There was always this tension between Sister Clodagh and General Toda Rai, who was played in the original film by Esmond Knight in rather retrograde brown face makeup. In the case of this movie the Beeb have been slightly more politically correct by casting an actor of Indian heritage in the case of Kulvinder who you might remember was brilliantly conservative as the ultra-Orthodox father in Blinded by the Light. The emphasis on religion and the clash between two religions is still there though. The nuns routinely argue with the native caretaker Anju Iyer and Nila for example, and have difficulty accepting a holy man on their grounds, the general's uncle, who spends his time staring into the mountains. There's also a local girl called Kanchi, who's played by Deepika Kunwa, who has an erratic spirit that the women are desperate to try and control. And you get a sense that these nuns are out of touch with the social norms, values, and traditions of life in pre partition majority Hindu India. For the first time, these women of God are having to face up to the fact that in this foreign country, many people don't believe in their God and believe in many gods, which is very different to how they have been raised, brought up. Up and indoctrinated and at the center of it all is a clash between two of the nuns the saintly sister Clodagh and the mentally unstable sister Ruth and this show like the original film deals with how different women cope with a life of celibacy. Sister Clodagh is vowed never to sleep with a man, but Sister Ruth finds her own vow tested by the emergence of the hunky Mr. Dean, played by Alessandro Nivola, who is a source of sexual attraction, jealousy, and rivalry for the girls. And it's actually when he rejects Sister Sister Ruth that she is pushed over the edge and has a mental breakdown. I think the relationship between Sister Clodagh and Sister Ruth is what drives the drama. They are polar opposites. I have to say, Gemma Artisan's sister Clodagh is just marvellous. She's beautiful, she's kind, she's well-spoken, and she's a woman of God, a true saint. And I think it's really nice that this actress, Gemma Artisan, has really found her niche playing characters from the 1930s and 1940s wartime era. I mean, she used to star in shit Bond films like Quantum of Solace and crappy blockbusters like Clash of the Titans, but since starring in that lovely World War II drama, their finest. She, she seems to really be at home now in wartime settings, like in Summerland and now in Black Narcissus. I suppose it's kind of fitting, to be honest, that she should blend really well into the 30s and 40s surroundings, because I've always thought she kind of looks like someone from that era. She has that terribly pretty, classic English Rose look that about her that many people from that era share. In contrast, you have Aisling Franziosi, who is a terrific actress. I love loved The Nightingale as much as I could given it's a film about a raped Irish convict who sets off on a path of bloody vengeance across 19th century Tasmania. I think what Franciosi has for one thing is she has a fragility about her, a neuroticism that shows in her very tight, tense and slightly timid facial expressions. And that's certainly the character she was at the beginning of The Nightingale and at the beginning of Black Narcissus. But she's also brilliant at being completely and utterly unhinged. She has those eyes that can go from timid and childlike to just frothing with fury and sexually charged jealousy and rage and when watching the nightingale she was quite literally transformed from a fragile young woman into an agent into an agent of destruction and her transformation here between from timid sister ruth to essentially avenging angel in the end battle between sister clodagh and sister ruth a battle of good and evil between god and the devil embodied by clodagh and ruth is genuinely chilling I can't quite say Franciosi is quite up there with Kathleen Byron who played Sister Ruth in the original and was quite literally the scariest nun ever put to film but I like that Franciosi put her own touch on the character by giving her more of a backstory that could easily be easily be developed over the course of a three episode miniseries but would have been more difficult at the original's roughly 90 minute runtime I got more of the sense of Sister Ruth's fragility in this BBC version which was a welcome The BBC Black Narcissus is atmospheric and beautifully filmed in Nepal, where I used to live, but most importantly it taps into what made the original such a classic. That's the culture clash between Christianity and Hinduism and Britain versus India. The story of a woman of God forced to question everything she believes in when setting foot in a foreign country. I hope we get a second season, and get to see more of Gemma Artisan being marvellous. That's Black Narcissus, and it's available on BBC iPlayer now. So that's today's show nearly done, but I couldn't leave you without giving you my Top 5 films of the week. These are all films available on home viewing services that have captured my attention over the past 7 days. So here it goes. At number 5, it's One Night in Miami, starring a Golden Globe-snubbed Kingsley ben Adair as Malcolm X, a great bro movie with a racial and political subcurrent that's available on Amazon Prime. At 4 is Wonder Woman 1984, which is available on multiple platforms, and Gal Gadot and Kristen Wiig are a great feminist two-hander in this 80s-inflected superhero sequel. And number 3, it's David Fincher's Mank, which deserves to win big at the Golden Globes, BAFTAs and Oscars. I hope hope Amanda Seyfried gets Best Supporting Actress. She's terrific in this movie, which is available on Netflix. At two, we have Soul, which is a lovely jazzy look at life, death, and the afterlife from those geniuses at Pixar. That's on Disney+, Plus, but it's not my number one, you know, after a record-breaking three-week run at the top spot. No, my number one is the movie we reviewed today, The White Tiger, a smart, sexy, Dickensworthy satire of a very divided modern India. Make sure you catch it on Netflix. It's my number one film of the week. So that's it for today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I appreciate it's been a longer show than usual. But I've loved talking about what I've been watching and asking my very first podcast guest, Henry Wright, what he's been watching. And now I'm going to ask you that very question: What you've been watching? Let me know at what you've been watching at roshansreviews.co.uk. I hope to have more guests on in the future, and I'll be asking them too: What you've been watching? That's it from me today, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and happy watching. This podcast's intro and outro music was brought to you by Music for Makers and was their own track, Stop and Go. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again soon.